Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Chelsea Bodie. Chelsea, together with her collaborator, Caitlin, is one half of the popular social media community, The Mama Psychologist. You can find them on Instagram, as I did. Chelsea and Caitlin are authors of the new Not Your Mother's Postpartum book, which is now out. They really focus on the new realities of parenting today in this post-pandemic world. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, Chelsea. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Amazing. I know I've interacted with a lot of your content on Instagram before. I'd love to hear a little bit about like your community and like who you're really speaking to. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in terms of where we're coming from, like the inspiration behind Mama Psychologist will probably kind of explain that <laughs> a little bit. So we were kind of nearing like lockdown of 2020 and Caitlin and I were both freshly postpartum moms and my journey was a little bit different than expected. I had my son tw- at 27 weeks, so he wow. was about three months early. And so, you know, in that time frame, I just felt so isolated and so alone and felt like, I just couldn't find people to connect with. And I'm like, okay, if I do this for a living, like I do this all the time, I work with families, I work with kids, I work with moms. And if I'm feeling this way and I'm supposed to like, quote unquote, know it or know how to handle it or know what to do. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Like how many other people out there are feeling this way? And so Caitlin actually was like, hey, do you want to start an Instagram account? Like we could do it together, talk about some real life stuff, talk about what we're going through and some of our professional knowledge. And just like build a community within our own local area. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? And it kind of just grew from there. And we really realized that, wow, people are looking for this. Parents are looking for this. Moms are looking for connection and support and just real life life stuff. And so I think that's kind of where we're coming from and where we, the people we're trying to reach and just to be honest and you know, say it's the good, the bad, the ugly, like it's all here. <laughs> I think there is this perception, right? Like I know I'm also a psychologist, right? And there's this perception mm-hmm. that somehow it's easier for us. Like we know all this stuff, like I'm a child psychologist, right? So like I should be really qualified for parenting because know all this stuff about children and child development and helping children. And then nothing really can prepare us, I think, for that experience of new motherhood and what that's like. And just the, it's almost a trauma in and of itself. And of course, in post-traumatic parenting, it's all about all the traumas we've had and the way those traumas make us feel like we're not ready to parent. Like, will my damage damage my children? But Mm -hmm. I think just that feeling of there's this tiny little human and I am responsible for all of it. And there's no grown up coming. Like, it's not like I'm babysitting and the parents are going to come home. Like, this is my kid and it's all on me and the mistakes I make and the things I do right. That's what's going to be this child's life. I think nothing really prepares us for that, even a PhD in psychology. Yeah, no, not at all. You're like, 
So you're just figuring everyone's figuring it out as we go, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it is hard. Like you come home with that baby and it's like, now what? Totally. And you're, you know, you're supposed to, depending how long your hospital stay is, sometimes it's that day and you're like caring for this new human. And, you know, we hear from so many parents, like I didn't connect right away. And it's like, that's okay. Like you have to get to know each other, right? Like you wouldn't expect to feel that way about anybody else that you just met. <laughs> right. It's true. I think one of those things, I remember having this conversation with a post-traumatic parent about how she felt like she didn't bond with her baby because mm -hmm. when her baby was born, she didn't have that like rush of maternal love. And I think a lot of that had to do with she had a very medically complicated birth that wasn't at all according to plan. Then she had, you know, to recover from a very complicated C-section. And I think she had gallbladder surgery or something right after. So she was like really sick and she was really worried. And I remember just pointing out to her that you know, your baby, to your baby, the thought is the deed, right? Your baby doesn't know that this is how you're thinking. To your baby, the fact is you're changing her diaper. You're getting up at two in the morning and you're like soothing her when she's crying. You're feeding her. You're singing her lullabies. She doesn't know what's going on in your head. All she knows is that when she cries, someone's picking her up. And when she's yeah. dirty, someone's changing her and someone's speaking to her comfortingly. And there's like soft, soothing sounds around her and that she smells this familiar smell, which is you. And she hears this familiar voice, which is you. That's all she knows. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know what's going on in your head so that you didn't feel the rush of love. And then she said she felt this rush of love and her baby was about six months old and the baby smiled at her. And that was the first time she really felt like, oh, I love this baby. She's like, what did I do? What damage did I do? It was like, honestly, no damage. Yeah, absolutely. That's so beautiful, though, to have those moments, right? Yeah. That you hear about. Yeah, it is very hard. It really is an adjustment. And it's not an adjustment. We could read every parenting book and we could like, really think we're prepared. But like, nothing's going to fully prepare us for like that real emotional adjustment to having a baby. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many factors too, right? Like you look at some people have a mat leave or a paternity leave or a leave from work and some people don't. And you're rushing back. Some people have traumatic births, some don't. And there's just so many things that can just influence our experience that way. And it's so individualized yet universal at the same time in some ways. It's, it's so it can be just so hard for people to share their experiences, I think. Yeah, it is a hard thing. I think it's a hard thing to like break that wall of silence about like it isn't always this rush of love. It isn't always this effortless feeling. Sometimes that takes work. Sometimes we're held back from our by our past or by our hangups. Sometimes it's emotionally draining and we weren't aware it would be that way. I think it's very hard for parents to admit that. Yeah, it's almost like this underlying like guilt or shame or that means I'm not grateful for my child. And, you know, I see a lot with families that I work with that have had fertility struggles, right? They go through these same emotions that, you know, parents who don't necessarily have that same journey and there's so much guilt with it because they're like, I fought so hard to have a, have this child. And now I feel this way. And it's like, it's okay to feel that way though, you know, and it's hard. I think we're now kind of in more in a culture where people, People are willing to like express it and talk about it a little bit more, but there's still, I think, a little bit of like that underlying judgment, like self-judgment. Yeah, I think there is. I think it's like uh, self-censoring and like a shame and almost like we're going to tempt the universe or we're going to tempt fate or something like that. Or, you know, I know people who are struggling with infertility and how can I say that this is hard or will this baby pick up on the fact that it's hard and I'm supposed to be this like effortlessly joyful parent who just knows what to do instantly. Like the playbook is just like going to download in my head as the baby's born and I, I can just do this. Yeah. 
like a computer system. It's just like an update, right? You just have to like get the new software and here we go. <laughs> Me, but a mom, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. What's something that you hope people will take out of your book? You must have written this book because there was something in the world that wasn't out there where you're like, you know what? Nobody's addressed this in a book. What's that thing that you want people to really pick out of your book? You know, I think it was like when you look at lots of like the postpartum books or the perinatal books, a lot of it is geared towards, okay, this is what happens, you know, with baby or this is what milestones to look for or physical recovery or, you know, just different things like that. And it just seemed like there was this gap in like, what is the mom or dad or parent going through that isn't talked about? Like, what if they had a traumatic birth? What if they're struggling with feeding? You know, what if boundaries are so hard for them to set now that they have this child in their life? So we really wanted to kind of create, we call it kind of like an encyclopedia, but really you can just go flip through the chapters, go to what you really need to do, because we know new parents don't have a lot of time and don't want to sit and read a 400 page book. And, you know, really just go to the tidbits of information that they're really looking for within that umbrella of postpartum and have the opportunity to say, okay, what does this mean? What can this look like? And then have, we have some strategies at the end of every chapter to kind of help you get started on what that could look like in terms of moving forward. So I love that because I think that it is true that in a lot of parenting books, it's like the candy and the wrapper analogy, you know, where the baby's the candy and the parents are the wrapper. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that leaves out a lot, right? Because like, what's it like to be the parent of this baby? As you're having this feeding struggle, what's it like to be the parent having the feeding struggle? Like, we can certainly tell you how to feed the baby. And like, there are better and worse ways, I think, to like, manage feeding, right? There are strategies that have been proven and tried and true. And there are better and worse ways of managing them. But also, what does it feel like to be that person struggling? And what are techniques to manage our own emotions around it? I think it's very true that like, the candy and wrapper just doesn't work, especially not for post-traumatic parents. No, absolutely. Right. And it can feel overwhelming. Like there's so much information when you look at, you know, the internet and social media and, you know, there's, we have access to all this information, but to have the time to sort through it, read research, read you know, just general information or look at somebody, maybe an influencer you follow online and it can feel so A, overwhelming, but B, it can be hard to know what is the real research or what's really going on and what can I trust and what can't I trust? And so we know that that can be hard. So we wanted to kind of filter some of that through. So it didn't seem so big. Yeah, it is big and it is hard. Even as a psychologist, you know, sometimes I'll look at something on social media and I'll be like, oh, that sounds really great. But being the geek that I am, I'll like research like the study that it's based on. And I'll be like, yeah, it was like three participants. And, you know, it doesn't sound like a representative sample of the world before this becomes this beautiful reel on Instagram that just sounds like, oh, something every parent should be doing. And it is hard. It's hard, I think, for anybody to filter what is the important information, what isn't the important information, especially like from people who have been there, because it is so hard I think when you haven't yet been there or when, you know, you've parented 20 years ago, like to remember Mm -hmm. what that early postpartum experience is like and just that struggle. Absolutely. And the sleep deprivation, I think, is such a big factor too, right? Like, do you have the emotional energy, the physical energy to actually go out and look through this stuff or find this stuff or even know where to start at that point anyways? 
It's really true. I think nobody's prepared for that. Like when they have a baby, like what that sleep deprivation is going to be like. Like we think we know what it's like to power through, to pull an all-nighter for a paper. But this is like all sleep deprivation all the time. And also it's like even when the baby sleeps, you can have those, you know, hormones that don't let you sleep or other things, right? Then it's like, oh my goodness, my house is a mess. Should I clean it up? Or I have work. Like, let's face it, many parents work, right? I have to get this, like these work emails returned. Or even for post-traumatic parents, a lot of us have this problem that we're either very light sleepers because of the traumas we've been through, or trauma really interferes with sleep and our ability to fully relax and sleep. So then you have this peacefully sleeping baby and you can't sleep. And that's like the absolute torture. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Your thoughts are racing. You're angry. You're frustrated. You're just wanting like that some kind of rest and can't have it. It's yeah, it's not a good place to be. And sometimes just having that normalization of what that's like, having that book, having that Instagram to look at and be like, okay, I'm not the only person in the world who's going through this. This is a pretty normal postpartum adjustment. Like this plus trauma is probably going to equal not a lot of sleep. And while that's not okay, right, because you should be getting more sleep, we want you to be getting more sleep, you know, it's worth like doing whatever you can to get a support system to get more sleep. It's also normal in the sense of in the statistical sense, this time will pass. People have done it. It can be done. It can be gotten through. It's difficult. It's challenging. It gets better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is, we hear from our community all the time. It's like, I never knew other people were going through this or, you know, I thought people were, but you don't really realize how many and just having that sense of community or that sense of almost like belonging in your struggle is so powerful for some people. What's the thing you've posted where people were absolutely blown away by and like keep referencing? Like what's like the one or two things where everyone says like, oh, I never knew that. One thing that we have is really popular is where we posted things that no one told you like giving birth. And it was like having the shakes after giving birth, not wanting to hold the baby right after giving birth, right? All of those things that can come just immediately after. And we're like, oh my gosh, I thought something was wrong with me. I didn't want to hold my baby or I was shaking so uncontrollably. I didn't even, no one told me about this. Why didn't no one tell me? It made me feel like something was wrong or you know, just like almost heightened the birth experience in a negative way. And so, yeah, there's like a lot of normalization of, oh, I wish somebody had told me this, but now I see how many people went through this. Yeah, that's super helpful just to know. Like, I know I I could just think if before I had my first baby, if I would have known that the shakes were normal, I think you're right. Nobody ever prepared. I went through childbirth education. You know, I went to like a childbirth class and I Mm -hmm. was pretty, you know, I, I thought I was pretty prepared. I had no idea about the shakes. And had I known that, I think it would have changed things. Because you're right, you panic when your body starts shaking uncontrollably. You're like, what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of our most popular recent ones that people felt like, I think, not had like light bulb moments, but almost like, oh, thank goodness. Like, I wish, I'm so glad this information is like being shared. Yeah, it's so important because I just even remember actually when I was pregnant with my first I remember, you know, you always hear how labor is so terrible and it's so intense and it's so hard and so difficult. And I remember one person saying to me, I think it was one of my sisters-in-law, it was somebody like who had just given birth. And she said to me, I just want to tell you, it was so scary for me to hear like labor is so intense, it's so terrible. But I didn't know like what kind of intense and terrible. It basically feels like your period only worse. 
Like it starts out, it feels like period cramps, and then they just get much, much, much more intense. I think once I knew that, it contextualized it. I was like, oh, this is the pain. Like I know what period cramps feel like. It made it so much less panic inducing than there's going to be this horrible pain and, 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 and nobody can even describe how horrible it is, right? Because that, like you can't even put your mind towards it. But just knowing that, like, oh, it starts out feeling like you're getting your period and then it gets more intense. And that's when you start saying, oh, I think I'm in labor. Oh, that helped. Now I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, context matters so much for people, right? Because like, how do you conceptualize it for yourself if you don't know what, what you've never done it, right? It's like, how how can I pretend I know what I'm doing when I've never done this before? Exactly. Because you ha never have. And even and even for those of us who are like, you know, having two kids and three kids, like, You've never done this pregnancy before. You've never done this baby before. You've never adjusted from one baby to two and from two to three, right? Like those are all adjustments in and of themselves. I think the more we normalize that, like it isn't so natural and normal in the sense that like you're just going to naturally know what to do. It's going to be fine. The mom brain will just like download into you and you'll figure it out. I think the more we normalize it, the more people don't panic when it's like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I always tell my clients, you're growing together, right? Like this isn't just a, you know exactly what you're doing and you're there and your child's just like growing up. You get to do that whole process together and it's very different. Yeah, the birth of a child is the birth of a mother. <laughs> and you know, that whole matrescence like experience, right? You are being born as a mother. And I think yeah. for post-traumatic people, I think that's super scary and challenging because we don't love change because change historically has been bad. So this is especially upheaval, right? Like, because if you think about it, a trauma is an experience that's too big for your brain to metabolize. And giving birth and becoming a mom is too, is an experience that's too big for your brain to metabolize. Now, that's in a good way, right? Like, in many ways, intensely joyful to meet your baby. But then at the same token, it's just too big of an experience. And when it's too big of an experience, our brain goes, oh, no, oh, no, I'm being traumatized again. Because yeah. that's the only frame of reference we have. Yeah, no, actually, it makes complete sense, right? And then throw in, if it is a more difficult pregnancy, more difficult birth, more, you know, if there's all of those things compounding, it makes sense why people will be like permanently in that state of like fight or flight, right? It's like, how do you get out of that? Because that feels familiar. Yeah. And then those hormones, they don't help. Because whenever no. you're already feeling, they're just going to make it worse. So if you're yeah. in fight or flight, you're going to be an intense fight or flight, you know, fight or flight on hormones, which is just not a good experience. And it does take a long time. I think we have to normalize that. Those giving birth hormones, those postpartum hormones, they last a long time. They don't just disappear mm -hmm. overnight. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't know where I read it, but it was like, you know, are we ever out of postpartum, like in a certain way, like, when does that end? And how does that end? And what does that look like? Right. And it was just an interesting way to frame it. Because, you know, you never are the same person you were before the postpartum. So when does it end? Hold it's on. true, because I've never like whatever age your child is at, like, I've never been the mom of a nine year old before or a 10 year old before. I mean, and then in post-traumatic parenting, I like to map that onto the ages we were during our trauma. Because what's very common in post-traumatic parenting is, as your child reaches the age that you were when you were traumatized, if it was a discrete trauma, or that you have a really strong trauma memory, if it was like a chronic trauma, like, for example, being raised in a home where it was very critical and harsh and not much love, 
then like you might have memories of like a specific incident that happened at age nine and a specific incident that happened at age 11 and a really humiliating incident that happened at age 14. So as your child approaches those ages, it's really normal to start having some re-traumatization symptoms, even though it's your child who's nine, your child's not going to be traumatized because you're raising them because our brain does that. Like nine is really dangerous. Like Mm -hmm. I remember what happened at nine. That's like a dangerous age. So even though your child's fine, the parent is feeling all of these senses. And I think it goes back to that idea that, yeah, we're constantly postpartum because we're constantly renegotiating the age and stage of our child. Absolutely. And even if it's a second, third, fourth, right, as you said earlier, you've never done it for that child. So it doesn't mean it's not going to be different. Yeah, it really doesn't. And it's just very, it's very true that whatever our traumas were, or even whatever our self-doubt is, that's what we bring to parenting. You know, I feel like if it's like, oh, I've always been poor at time management and I've always been considered myself somewhat irresponsible and that's, you know, what I've heard in life, then that's the fear that's going to come into parenting. If it's like, I've never been good enough, that's the fear that's going to come into parenting. If it's, Mm -hmm. I must be a people pleaser because otherwise no one will like me, that's going to come into parenting. Whatever we have, we're going to bring it into parenting. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I find a lot of parents are like looking for it in their child too, right? Like it's not necessarily a conscious process, but they're like, oh, is this mean like they're going to turn out like me? Or does this mean they're going to experience the same challenges that I experienced or different things like that? Right. With the caveat that, but they have you as their parent. So even if like you were an anxious kid and now you're seeing tendencies of anxiety in your child, and let's face it, your kid came by it honestly, because anxiety is at least somewhat genetic. So mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and a mother says, is this my fault? Well, in the sense that you pass your genes on to your child, but like until like gene editing becomes a thing, yeah. like an actual <laughs> thing, can't do much about that. Yeah. But like, so the genetic aspect, sure, but you know what anxiety is like. So you know how to talk to this kid at a really young age about Mr. Worry and their brain that's telling them that this is really dangerous. You know how to support them. You know, you have a superpower. You know what they'll need, that you know exactly the support they'll need because you've lived it. You know what it is to be like an anxious second grader who has to go to school and is hearing that she's having a different teacher than the one she expected. You know what that's like. Yeah, build that confidence up. Yeah, because it's true that fear of like, did I pass this on to my kids? Will I mess up my kids? It's such a common fear. Absolutely. I think majority, I'll go to say majority of parents, regardless of experience, traumatic or not, will feel that at some capacity. Yeah, I think it's a pretty universal fear. And then if you have specific reasons to assume that you would, you know, if you've been told your whole life that you're not good enough, yeah, Mm -hmm. then you're definitely going to be thinking that about parenting because the stakes are so high. I don't know a single parent who doesn't have those like high stakes where parenting is the one thing I cannot afford to screw up. No, absolutely. I'd agree with you for sure. And in terms of In writing the book, was there anything that like as you wrote it, like it surprised you or you just really loved it? I think what was surprising, I'll speak for myself, I guess I was going to say, I don't know if Caitlin felt like this as well, but, you know, sharing parts of your own story is is different for me, especially being as a psychologist. It's not often that we share our stories necessarily. And so finding the right words or finding how I wanted to express or what I wanted to express, I think was really surprising because like my traumatic birth story and my son's NICU journey. And the, those are really personal. And so finding ways to express that, to connect, but also validate whoever may be reading and going through those same things was definitely an interesting journey. Yeah, it, it is a little threatening. It's interesting because in the book, in the post-traumatic parenting book, 
for me also, I share my trauma story. And it was, I had to work on that. Like I was working on that with my agent about like, how deep do I want to go? Because you're right, in like traditional psychology school, we don't do self-disclosure, even though I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. So the rules are actually a little different around self-disclosure. But I think my roots, because I went to a program that was like half you know, half like object relations and psychoanalytic and half cognitive behavioral. I sort of had that phobia about like self-disclosure. But the truth is, I feel like there's so much power as moms when we share our stories. And this is specifically moms, but dads too, right? Where we normalize and we're like, this was hard for me too. This was my story. Maybe it's not your story, but can you connect to pieces of the story? There are a lot. I can think of my own NICU story, right? As you're talking about your NICU story, like my brain flashed to my NICU story, right? And we can connect on that and we can bond on that. And we can also say like, she had a NICU story. She came out of it okay. She came out of it on the other side and her baby's okay. And maybe I can get hope from that. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a good way to frame it because you're right. You just somewhere deep down, regardless of where you come, psychology, it's just like, don't share to, you know, and so, and it's, I think it's changed. I think it's changed a lot, right? Of course, finding that appropriate balance, but it's not necessarily where it is. I think that nowadays, we don't like taking information from talking heads. Like we really want to know that we're hearing from a whole person who isn't perfect, who has self-doubt, who's had, who's gone through something, who can get it. I think that that model was like the very like 1980s model, like, you know, where it was like (laughs) these perfect people who were writing a parenting book and like they really were a talking head and they had it all together. I just think, first of all, they didn't. They were just, you know, (laughs) hiding a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, let's face it. There was no social media then. Nobody was able to check up. It would be really hard to like actually find out what's going on in their houses. So it was possible to do that. But it's so inauthentic. We have to Mm -hmm. bring our full selves to it. For sure. And, it, you know, I think especially I'm sure your experience with trying to write, it's you do, right? You you can't help but bring yourself into it and you can't help leave part of yourself in it, right? And these stories are real and vulnerable. And and so I think it's just a really nice way to hopefully connect and to share them. Yeah. I think, you know, that idea that like all research is me search is so true. But I think then me search becomes a search because like, There's no experience that's like uniquely me that someone else can't be like, well, I didn't go through that, but I get the feeling of abandonment that you experience. I get the aloneness. I get the terror. I get the overwhelm, right? So Mm -hmm. even, you know, like I was thinking like when you were saying about your son being born at 27 weeks. So my son was born at my most recent baby was born. He was supposed to be born at 36 weeks. And then he was born at 34 weeks because I was really sick at the end of the pregnancy and they kept moving my C-section date up. But even like that, right? And like that, there's a huge difference. Every week makes a huge difference that the baby gets to stay in makes a huge difference. But that sensation, right? I didn't go through what you went through. You didn't go through what I went through. But at the same token, that ability of us to connect, be like, yeah, I know what that NICU is like. That's scary. It's so important. It's me search, but then it's us search. It just keeps happening. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that for sure. No. And you know what? The feelings I think are similar, right? No matter regardless of the exact details or the exact story, you can connect with those underlying emotions that are coming through. And I think sometimes our fears, almost like I I know for me, like in post-traumatic parenting, like on Instagram, 
the questions people ask me, like the fears that they have, that's what informs like what I look into next. That's what informs what I think about. I remember talking to my own therapist about I had this fear because I knew I was going to have this like very medically complicated C-section. I had this fear that my baby was going to be born and I would not be conscious and I wouldn't be able to like talk to my baby right when he was born and he would want to hear my voice and my voice wouldn't be there. And as I was saying it out loud to my therapist, I thought, oh, I could just record my voice. Like I could just make a voice recording and be like, hi, baby, I'm your mommy, exactly as I did with my other kids, just in case. So that fear, just I didn't even need my therapist to say it. As I was voicing the fear aloud, I said, oh, there's actually a solution. My baby can hear my voice the minute he's born because I can record my voice and I probably won't be unconscious. I wasn't. I was awake and it was fine. But that fear is easy to handle. Like once we voice our fears aloud, I feel like they become so much more manageable. And I'm sure you see that in your community as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It almost takes some like power away from it or, you know, just having some, some type of validation or feeling heard. We get messages all the time where it's like, I just needed somewhere to type this, like answer, don't answer. I just needed to like rant or like get this off my chest. And, you know, you see it obviously in a different capacity with one-to-one clients, but yeah, we get those messages all the time. It's so cute because I had somebody just today DM'd me and she wrote that, like, she wrote that she's crying at my most recent post. And she's crying tears of joy because she thought she was the only person who thinks this way or who feels this way. And she's feeling so validated that someone else is putting this into words. So she's not the only, as she put it, crazy person. I don't like that term, but I know what she means. Like she's not the only person who thinks this way. And then I responded and right away she said, you know, you didn't have to respond. I just wanted you to know that. Like it really touched me. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Those messages are the ones that help keep you going, right? Like in terms of like feeling all the work and all the everything that goes into it. It's like, that's so beautiful to get a chance to hear that. Hey, Yeah, it is. It's like, you feel like you're just shouting into the void. You never know who's listening, <laughs> yeah. what's going to stick. It's not like when you're speaking face to face and we're like talking and like, we can read each other's body language there. It's like, I don't know. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's a fantastic feeling. But I think it is so it is so good that we're part of this trend of let's say the unsayable, like, let's yeah. just speak the truth. Oh, absolutely. It's so important. And I think like it allows people to say, oh, maybe I can say this, or maybe I can talk about this, or maybe I can share this with even somebody close to me or somebody I've met on the internet or anything like that, right? If you can have one person in your life that you can have that space for. Yeah, because we do. We all bring, you know, this self-doubt to parenting. We all bring this feeling of like, I don't know how to do this. I don't, I just don't know. I don't know what the right thing is. I don't know what the wrong thing is. I'm reading all this stuff. I don't know if you've had this experience. Have you ever had the experience where you like you looked at somebody's post on Instagram and it made you just feel shamed or blamed or worse? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're like, well, I don't do that or I I've done the opposite of that and that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where you just feel like, I don't know, for me, it's like those bento box posts where people are like, "And I made this cute little panda for my kid's lunch and it's like, yeah, my kids aren't getting pandas. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just, there's just no way I can make red pepper strips to make it look like, you know, I don't know, some panda that like looks exactly right. And like, it's a perfectly balanced lunch too. And we got all the nutrients and like, we're eating the rainbow and it's so cute. Like, yeah, that's never going to happen. Oh yeah. No, I have uh, I'll say a um, selective eater. So I, 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 those ones are me too. I'm like, oh, that's my kid likes chicken nuggets. <laughs> yeah. 
I could make a bento box out of a chicken nugget, maybe. Yeah, I yeah, I'm not a visual person. There are just things I cannot do, and that is one of them. So I know that in your book you talk about boundaries and relationships, and I know for a lot of post-traumatic parents, that's really something difficult to navigate and negotiate, especially in that immediate postpartum period. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of that, for our boundaries book, or sorry, boundaries chapter, it's not a whole book. We kind of talk about what boundaries can look like, what different types of boundaries there are, you know, how they're difficult to set, because I think that's important to know that, you know, if you are struggling with it, this is not something, again, that you need to feel alone with or that, you know, you're the only one who has trouble setting these boundaries, especially when there's a new baby involved. And so we go through all of that. And then we do have some like different steps that you can work with, some prompts in terms of different sentences you can use to help set those boundaries. And obviously, then you can adjust them to kind of fit your certain circumstances. Similar with relationships, like we do know that having children can obviously put a lot of pressure if you do have a partner or if you are trying to balance that relationship. So we do talk a lot about how, you know, that satisfaction can go down, how it's difficult to navigate, how somebody sometimes turns into a default parent and has to bear a lot of the load of parenting. And and that kind of leads into some other areas of like burnout that we talk about and, and different things like that, because it is challenging to kind of find that balance. It really is. And I think it's interesting that you're actually talking about boundaries because, you know, especially for post-traumatic parents, what happens is if you're coming from a family of origin that doesn't really understand boundaries and that does make it all about them, it's really hard. Like in that immediate postpartum period, sometimes we just want to like kind of nest. We just want to be like mom and baby, mom, dad and baby, you know, whoever just that tiny nuclear family. We don't want our family of origin over quite yet or as much. And or people just want to like have a party. They want you there. They want you participating. And you're just I just feel like a truck ran over me and I'm not like ready to like come to a party or bring my baby to a party or anything like that. Where a lot of times family of origins, we always talk about the difference between boundaries and barriers, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people look at when you set a boundary, they think it means a barrier. So they think that when you say like, you know, I know you really want to come visit, but this weekend we kind of just want to be the nuclear family. And they see that as a barrier. Like, What? But I'm your mom. What do you mean? You know, like what? But I'm your mother-in-law. I want to be here. I want to see the baby. And it does feel very threatening to them because they've never heard it before. And just mm-hmm. even being able to know that there is a difference between a boundary and a barrier, right? Like a boundary is how close I feel, how close I feel comfortable to getting. And a barrier is like, don't come at all. Setting a boundary and saying like, this is how close I feel to you. I feel close, but not this weekend close, right? Or you can yeah. come over and visit today, but tomorrow not. Or you need a knock before you come in or, sure. you know, things like that. Please don't reorganize the nursery without asking me first, whatever it is, those kinds of things. You know, for us, sometimes when we've never established that with our family of origin, and then we have to do that the first time when there's a baby, when suddenly the stakes feel really, really high, can be really hard. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we do also talk for parents who haven't given birth yet. We do have what we call like a postpartum plan. And so it's an area to fill that out. Like, okay, if you do have a partner, what's your partner's role and what boundaries do you want to have ahead of time? Like, just starting to think about those things because we often talk to, you know, families, if they are going through a lot or have a lot going on or have other children, you know, sometimes there isn't that space to really think about it till you're in it. And then you're like, oh, my boundary was just crossed. and I didn't even realize I had that boundary. And so it's sometimes it can be hard to do that backpedaling for people. Those two chapters can complement each other nicely because it's like, hey, if you're before you can think about it or if you're after, you can still do it. There's still time. 
Yeah, we're not always prepared for like how intensely we feel it. When our boundaries are crossed, we usually feel anger. And we sometimes are not prepared for just how angry we'll feel when mm-hmm. someone crosses our boundary, particularly when it's somebody who's been crossing our boundaries our whole life. And then it's suddenly with regards to the baby. And mm-hmm. suddenly that feels like it can hijack us. It can take us by complete surprise because our whole body, our whole fight or flight instinct is focused on protecting that baby. So when that person who's already a boundary crosser comes and starts to cross a boundary with the baby, it can feel so threatening and we're not ready for it unless we think it through. It's so helpful to have a resource like that because then you can think it through beforehand and be like, how are we going to communicate with this person about this boundary? Absolutely. And it's sometimes it's nice also to think about it before the sleep deprivation or the hormones or, you know, everything, because we often hear from parents when they're in that postpartum kind of fog, I'll call it, and the raging hormones, especially right after birth, I felt guilty because I was like, is this the hormones? Is this me? You know, and it can feel really like convoluted or confusing for people. Yeah, it can. And people, there's something about a baby that makes people who don't have a strong sense of boundaries feel even more I don't want to use the word entitled, but entitled, it's the only word that's coming to mind to cross that boundary, right? Because like, I'm an experienced parent. I know this. I raised a kid. So I know all of this. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. this is my grandchild. This is my niece, you know, where it's like, I have this right, but they haven't been given that right. So there's just something about a baby. It's something about being pregnant, right? Where everyone feels free to like touch your stomach, whether you're comfortable with touch or not, right? Mm-hmm. And then like with a baby where people feel free to like pick up the baby or, you know, do things. And you're wait a minute, one sec. This is not what I agreed to or this is not something that I expected to happen. I had a parenting class participant who was talking about a relative of hers who was very intrusive in her own life and you know, her kid didn't want to eat like a cookie at a family party. Her kid was like two or three. The kid was feeling a little shy. And she basically like the relative like sort of stuffed the cookie in the kid's mouth. She was like, taste this cookie here. And she basically like like shoved it towards the kid's mouth. And the mom just felt so enraged, right? Because it just went to all of her pain at this person crossing her boundaries. And then her kid is looking threatened and taken aback and like afraid. And then she said afterwards, she said, what happened? She offered my kid a cookie, right? Although offering a kid a cookie by shoving it in the kid's mouth sounds a little extreme even to me. <laughs> I'm not a very judgmental person, but it sounds sounds a little much. But at the same token, she wasn't prepared for the level of rage she would feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which we do talk a lot about we call it mom rage in the book, but we do talk a lot about that rage that can, you know, come up and how it's often like this representation of like unmet needs or, you know, sign of post uh, perinatal mood disorders or different things like that. Right. And there's a lot of shame and guilt around anger or rage. And so we do actually dedicate some time to talk about that too, because, you know, I think again, not name it to tame it. It sounds really lame, but you know, really having a space to verbalize that emotion and that experience can be so helpful for people. It's accepted to integrate it. Like you're allowed to feel that anger. It makes Mm -hmm. sense that then you're also going to feel rage given that like your inner child is probably like screaming right now and your entire protective instinct is focused on this child. And then on top of that, there's this real boundary crossing. Like it all makes sense. But when we acknowledge it and we're like, this is what's going to happen. This is what it's likely to happen. These are the boundaries that I really want people to respect around my baby or around my like young toddler. This is what I what I want. Much easier than to talk to them about it ahead of time. Yeah. You yeah. know, like even 
you know, even like, let's say all the stuff with like different people having different like levels of caution around COVID, you know, once you're like, okay, this is how I feel. It's so much easier to just say like, we'd really prefer nobody pick up the baby if they're not wearing a mask or whatever, or like, we prefer nobody (laughs) pick up our baby without asking us first. When you know that you have that value and you know that that's how you feel about it, it's so much easier to communicate it in a way that feels safe and respectful to everybody. Then when someone picks up the baby, you're like, put the baby down, right? That just feels the whole different interaction. Absolutely. And I think I always tell people like rehearse it, like text it out, write it out, practice with your partner, you know, see how it feels to actually say it. So, you know, you know, do I need to tweak it? How does this come off? How would I take this? You know, if you want to edit it, like there's no shame in practicing. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's such an underrated technique, right? Like, especially with dealing with family drama, right? Like, the more you rehearse and then the more you can like, can I inject some music into my voice? Can I inject some gentleness into my voice? How I'm feeling, I may not be feeling very gentle and I may not be feeling very musical right now, but can I practice it until it rolls off the tongue in this gentle way? Because people tend to take gentle communication better. Yeah, absolutely. It's true also, I think that we're just not so prepared about how the introduction of a baby will alter our relationships. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think too, it's, it's funny. I think people don't realize how like widespread, like how many relationships are impacted, right? Like friendships, you know, mother, like in-law relationships, uh, mother, I say mother-in-law because that's the one we often hear the most from people mm-hmm. in terms of our community that they're struggling with or the relationships with their own parents, or if they don't have parents, what does that look like? And, you know, if there's a loss of a parent, it can be like a lot of grief can come up with that too. Yeah. Well, people don't die in the past, they die in the future. And sometimes we're not even cognizant of like, there's a little corner of our brain that thinks that somehow like our dead parent will be around to hold our baby, even though they haven't been around. So Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, they're really not here. They're really not seeing the baby smile. They're really not, you know, they're really not going to be there for the baby's first, you know, birthday or whatever. It's really hard because then they keep on dying in a whole new way. All those missed opportunities. Yeah. And it's sad. And I think we have to make space for sadness. I think we think that having a baby is going to be totally joyful and we don't really make space for the fact that there's going to be sadness and there's going to be fear and there may be envy and there may be jealousy and there may be shame and there may be self-doubt. Like all those emotions are going to come. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also it's people aren't prepared to make space for both, right? It's like kind of extreme. Like I, I can't feel guilty or I can't, I should feel grateful, right? Or you know, I'm supposed to just love every minute and I'm not supposed to feel like this is too much sometimes. And, you know, having that and both and is not something people are familiar with all the time or comfortable with. I think even when we're familiar with it intellectually, it's hard to like know what it feels like deep down and deep inside. Like, I'm sure you had the both and when it came to like giving birth but then not in the way that you expected to. And, you know, and, and, you know, having that NICU experience, I'm sure you had that both and like the joy of meeting your baby, but your baby's really sick and what it's going to be like to have this NICU journey. I'm sure you had that both. And I think even if we know it, it's sometimes hard to feel it. Yeah. It's mixed up with so many things, right? How much we're feeling and, you know, can we even verbalize or label it and, and all of those things? Yeah. And I think the more we normalize it and the more we talk about these things, the better, right? Because for our own sakes, for our children's sakes, because the more it then becomes like, this is normal. It's okay. At least we don't have to 
on top of having struggling with the emotions because they are going to be a struggle and they are going to be overwhelming. We don't have to also have the thought of like, am I the only person who's ever felt this way? Like this woman who emailed me, like, am I the only crazy one? Right? We're not. All emotions are welcome, even the uncomfortable ones. And sometimes the uncomfortable ones are the ones that give us the most information about ourselves in the world. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Do you think that, you know, now that you, you know, you have the social media community and you have the book, do you think that it's changed your own parenting journey or changed the way you relate to your, do you have kids or a kid? <laughs> I have two kids. I, okay. my, my son is three and my daughter is 10 months. Oh, wow. So I actually think it was really healing for me to go through this and to create this community. You know, when I felt really lost in the NICU journey, I think it gave me kind of a sense of purpose at the time. Not only did I do a lot of therapy and go through a lot of work that way, but I also, it just felt like I had a voice when I came from a place where I didn't really feel like I had one. And what, even though it wasn't necessarily directed about my story or about me, it felt like a chance just to just to have something to say about this experience. And I think it really helped, yeah, move me forward through that experience. And I think it also really made me appreciate it in a different way, which sounds kind of funny to say. And then, of course, my colleague or my my partner, she does more of the parenting stuff, and I always learn little tips and tricks from her too that I haven't really thought of as my as a parent myself, or even helping coach and teach other parents either. So that's always fun to have in the back of my pocket. <laughs> yeah, I think I sometimes love it when people ask a question on Instagram, and I think like, oh, actually, I have the perfect game or the perfect storybook or the perfect technique for that. And then, like I say, you know, I'm going to dust that game off, you know, especially in my office because I have a lot of toys in my like the playroom of my office. Like sometimes and what I like to do is I sometimes rotate toys from my playroom in my office to my upstairs of my house. And like I'll trade toys back and forth like, oh, I'm going to bring that toy upstairs because actually my kid could use that right now. And I think I'll bring one up or I'll order another one. And we're going to play that game for a while because of that question that was asked on Instagram that reminded me that I know that technique and we can use it. Yeah. No, I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> I think we're always talking to ourselves, right, in the end mm -hmm. with all of this stuff. You know, as much as it's our journey, it's my journey. And as much as it's your journey, it's always the hour to the me, to the me, to the us. I feel like mm -hmm. it, it always is bouncing back and forth between that. Yeah. No, we get so much out of it too, right? It's amazing how much you can learn from other people and other perspectives. And, you know, when you start reaching out to, you know, worldwide community, that you just learn so much more from how you know, other cultures and other experiences. Yeah, for sure. And there's so much to learn. And there's so much, there's so many ways of thinking about a problem and like entering into a problem or entering into a challenge or even hearing like, oh, this is probably not a challenge at all. Like just recently, a friend of mine who's a medical researcher DM'd me and she said, you know, her kid was having a symptom and she said, oh my goodness, does this mean that my child was sexually abused or this happened or that happened? I said, you know, when we hear um, Huffbeast in the forest, we usually think horses, not zebras. So before we worry like, you know, oh, we, my kid is wetting the bed, is this some um, sexual abuse? Let's first check for a UTI, right? Like first go to the pediatrician and let's check mm -hmm. and make sure that everything physical is happening, right? There's a protocol that we follow. And it's interesting because she's a medical researcher, right? So what ended up happening was, right, when it's our own kid, we panic. So she knows better, right? She knows it's horses, not zebras. But when it's our own kid, we get into that like panic mode. And then when we hear from someone else, well, this may not be a problem at all, or this is actually pretty normal. Kids do this. Then it's suddenly, you know, I know a mom in one of my um, parenting classes 
was very weirded out when her two-year-old started talking to an uh, imaginary friend in the mirror and this imaginary mm-hmm. friend. And that was all fine, except that this woman's mom had bipolar disorder and it sometimes was manic and saw things that weren't there. So she was just so panicky until she came into the parenting class and we said, yeah, two-year-olds will have imaginary friends. It's a very normal state. And yeah, they will just wake up one morning with an imaginary friend. Like it's that sudden. Mm-hmm. You know, like your kid looking into the mirror, her kid's name, I think, is Michelle, right? And Michelle's like, look, utter Michelle. Look, there's Michelle. And like other one, Michelle, me, Michelle, other one, Michelle. And like not wanting to move away from the mirror because other one, Michelle is there and she wants to play with other one, Michelle and having like a meltdown when mom's like, OK, we're going to go downstairs for breakfast now. Yeah, your kid's not psychotic. That's just called an imaginary friend. And yeah, they do just wake up one day with one. If they're going to, that's how it happens. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's amazing how many things that happens with you. Like my, I remember my son, he just suddenly decided he loved like coyotes and wolves and it just like came out of nowhere. And then one day he decided they were scary. So <laughs> yeah. And like, if you are a parent with self-doubt, because like in your life, you've been told something about your competence, then all of a sudden you're gonna be like, oh, what did I do? How did I, did I traumatize him? What did I do? Kids are like that sometimes. Like that's just the way the human brain works. It progresses. Like sometimes a kid is like, oh, this is so funny, a coyote. And then their brain matures to the point where they can understand danger. And they can understand that like big sharp teeth are big sharp teeth. And then they're scary. And you did nothing wrong. The brain just matured to the point where now the brain can comprehend that these things are scary. And yeah, parents will do that self-doubt thing and will do all of those things. Or even like, you know, when a kid just becomes obsessed with a certain character and like it's all about that character and it's only that character. Like, oh no, what did I do? What do I do? What if this kid has this problem, that problem? I Googled it, like never Google it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, don't Google it. Like, <laughs> Dr. Google, no, don't do it. <laughs> bad idea. You know, because everything is like, everything is going to like, you know, boil down to like either a symptom of abuse or, your, or a hidden sign of autism. Just because your kid is like completely... <laughs> you know, obsessed with Thomas or completely obsessed with, you know, Chase from Paw Patrol or whatever does not mean they're on the spectrum. doesn't mean they're not on the spectrum. And if they are on the spectrum, it's not the end of the world. And like, right, brains are neuroplastic, all of that. But like, just don't Google it, right? This is where you need to get your information from people who research child development and who understand that. Because like a lot of these things, and even if it is a problem, chances are there's a solution. Yeah, absolutely. Well, kids are so fascinating, right? As I'm sure you know, right? Just watching them grow and learn. And sometimes you're just like, I just wish I could know what, like, what was happening in there because it's just amazing how creative and just how fast things change like within their brain for them. Yeah, their brains are incredibly, I mean, like, they're just so incredibly plastic and they're just so, they're just growing so fast. And I think that's another thing that I a lot of post-traumatic parents very often struggle with. Like we had a story, someone, this story will stick with me forever. Someone in one of my parenting classes said that like when her baby was born, her baby was just incredibly colicky, just crying all the time. And she came into class and she said, I know why this baby's crying. This baby's crying because she knows she has me for a mom and I'm not capable of being a mom. I'm very flawed. I'm just not going to be a good mom. So she's crying because she knows this. And I remember just looking at her and saying, your baby's brain is literally wired to love the sound of your voice and to love your smell and to think that that's the most comforting, familiar, amazing thing in the world. Your baby's brain is not, your baby is not capable of the kind of complex thought thinking like, oh yeah, no, I have my mom for a mom. I don't want my mom. I want that mom. That's going to happen in adolescence. That's going to be totally normal. (laughs) Don't worry, you'll be public enemy number one and that's going to be the absolute 
job of the child's brain at that point. But right now, your baby's six months old, and all she's thinking is, mommy, that's the mommy smell. That's the mommy sound. That's all she's thinking. She does. That's your brain and your trauma telling you that mm-hmm. your baby's brain is just thrilled to hear the sound of your voice. It's literally yeah. what it's wired for. I feel for her. I feel yeah, like, that, that like, sadness of hearing her say this and just yeah. like, and I got the validity of what she was saying in her heart, like how true that it felt to her mm-hmm. and how authentic it felt to her. And then also how, from a neuroscience perspective, what she's saying is absolutely impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's from that bird's eye view, right? That outside perspective yeah. sometimes them. And I think it's so helpful for post-traumatic parents to like know this and to know that like, like in your book, the things that we will struggle with, the things that are going to be hard, there's a solution. Other people have been through this and they're not the worst parent in the world. So neither are you. Right. Mm-hmm. And every other people have struggled with boundaries. Other people's relationships have felt really fraught after their babies were born. Other people struggled with these emotions and these physical symptoms. Like this is so normal. And while it's not comfortable, it's going to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just such a special contribution that like you're making by writing this book. And, you know, I am so excited that it's going to be out this Tuesday. I know I copy is on its way to me. So we're probably going to be running a giveaway on Instagram because I think it's a really useful book for a lot of post-traumatic parents to look into. Yeah, thank you so much. We definitely hope so. You know, it was a labor of love and really comes from a place where we hope. Yeah, we just hope people get that connection piece and that validation. So where can our community find you? So we are on Instagram at Mama Psychologists is our handle. We also have, oh my gosh, we dabble in a few different other areas of social media that I don't understand, like TikTok. And we do have a Facebook page and a Pinterest page, but I'm not very good with TikTok. Um, I know. And I'm we do have just a learning it, just figuring it out. Yeah. haven't yet posted <laughs> one, but I'm, I'm starting to wrap my brain around it. Yeah. It's uh, social media is a wild ride. <laughs> um, and then we do have a website as well, mamapsychologist.ca. And you, we do post like our workshops and any information or like we do sometimes we do these like PDF guides and things like that. So it's all on there as well. And the title of the book when it's going to be out so that people can know to look for it. Yeah, of course. And <laughs> our book, um, it's called Not Your Mother's Postpartum Book. And it is going to be released on January 17th. So next Tuesday, wow. uh, it can be found on Amazon, the Chapters Indigo website for any Canadians and Book Depository, I think, dot com is where you can also find it. And they have worldwide free shipping. Oh, wow. Amazing. So exciting. Congratulations. I know what the book journey is like. I wish I would be at like your stage of it, but eventually, but really, really exciting. (laughs) Yes. You know, this just needs to happen. We're going to manifest it every day. So fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us, Chelsea. I really think that this conversation will be so helpful to all post-traumatic parents and cannot wait to have the actual physical copy of the book in my hands. Yes. We're excited for you to get it. And thank you so much for, again, for having us on or having me. I keep saying us because I usually have my partner with me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. 
please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents, too. Can't wait to hear from you.